Beloved, our text for this evening is from Romans 7. We'll consider tonight verses 14 through 25. Romans 7, 14 through 25. After communion, there are many questions and thoughts that run through our minds particularly for new communicants. The question arises, what should I feel? What should I experience post-communion? How should I feel after coming to Christ? What is realistic and biblical experience in the Christian life? Should my experience be one where I experience perfection, where sin is no longer, so I no longer wrestle with sin ever again? Should my experience be after communion that I I never struggle with lust or with fear or with discontentment again? If justification declares me righteous in Christ by faith alone, What does that look like in daily, ordinary living? If I'm a new creature in Christ, what happens to the old nature? Does it disappear entirely? These are some questions that may arise after communion, also in the course of the Christian life. Well, this evening we need to consider what Scripture teaches regarding the reality of Christian experience on this side of glory. What Paul sets before us in Romans 7, 14 through 25 is realistic Christian experience. But I also want to argue tonight that even though it's realistic experience, it is hopeful Christian experience. Because it brings us back to where we need to be in Christ. It brings us full circle to our dependence on Christ, just as we confessed it this morning by coming to the table. As we consider what biblical and realistic and hopeful Christian experience is, it will bring us back to where we need to be. So the Christian life is not one of defeat by sin. Though sin's presence is still felt on a daily basis. It's one of conflict, certainly, but not a conflict without hope or without progress. It's a conflict that takes place internally, but it is not a Christless conflict that we have to fight on our own. So our theme tonight is this, the reality of Christian experience. And as Paul sets that before us tonight, we consider in our first thought, understanding an important contrast. Part of this reality is is understanding this contrast that Paul sets before us in the text, particularly in verses 14 through 16. As Paul comes to this point in his epistle, it's important to understand the, the argument that he's making. In Romans 1 through 3, he's showing that all men, all of humanity is guilty before God apart from Christ, apart from faith in Christ as revealed in the gospel of God. 
Chapters 4 through 6, he goes on to show how sinners who are guilty before God are justified or declared righteous before God in Christ. And in Romans 7, Paul is transitioning his argument from justification, that which happens entirely outside of, of the sinner before the tribunal of God. He now shifts the focus to what life looks like as a justified sinner. It was Luther who used that term, both justified and a sinner. And so we need to understand Romans 7 and then Romans 8 as two sides of the same coin. Romans 7 7 sets before us the reality, the real-life experience of the Christian in the world on this side of glory. Romans 8 sets before us the ideal of the Christian's experience as we look ahead to glory and the truths that sustain us in that battle against sin. Romans 7 is the battleground of Christian experience. Romans 8 is the triumph of Christian experience in Christ. And so Paul builds his case using a series of contrasts. He's dealing with the function of the law in the life of a sinner. It first brings a sinner to the realization of sin. The law continues to function in the life of a believer to show us our sin. So the first contrast that we need to understand here is the contrast between the law and the human heart. In verses 1 through 13, Paul is arguing the case that the law is good. The law reveals sin, but we can never blame the law for sin. The law works like salt on a wound. It it aggravates sin because the law points out sin's presence. And you might ask, well, why does the law do that? How How does the law function that way? Well, the law teaches us who God is. The law teaches us that God is holy. We could say the law is a transcript of God's holiness. We read those commandments in the law, the Ten Commandments, and we learn who God is, that God is perfectly holy. There is no blemish in who God is. And then when we look in the mirror of the law, what do we see? We see the law's perfection and we see our own imperfection over against the law. Children, think of it this way. If you go to an abandoned shed, you open the doors of that shed and you flick on the light. The light reveals all the dust bunnies, all the cobwebs, all the rodents, cockroaches, the mice, and the rats. But just because the light reveals these things that give us goosebumps and make us afraid doesn't mean that the light is bad. The light is good because it exposes the things that we would trip over, that we would hurt ourselves on, that might cause us to stumble. The light shows the obstacles in our path. The light is good. It should be a welcome presence as it points out the places where we could get stuck. 
The law is like that light in the abandoned shed. The law is good in that it reveals the sin that lives within the human heart, even the sin that lives within a believer. That's what Paul is getting at here tonight in this passage. Even though it aggravates and points out sin, and that can be painful, Paul says the law can never be faulted for pointing out our sin. The law is not bad in that sense. Paul concludes in verse 14, the law, for we know that the law is spiritual. This is what we need to remember as Paul is building this contrast between the law and the human heart. The law is spiritual. It's doing the Spirit's work in revealing the things that are bad. And so the law should be a welcome presence in the life of a believer as it points out our sin. So on the one side of the contrast, we have the law that comes and and aggravates sin, as Paul says in verse 13 as well, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. If God had not given the law, we would not know our sin. But on the other side of the contrast, we have this statement in verse 14, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal. So the contrast here is between that which is spiritual and that which is fleshly. That's what the word carnal means, fleshly, that which is born out of sin. That's how Paul refers to the word flesh here. It's not just flesh, it's not just the meat of of our bodies, but it's flesh in the sense of that which is sinful, the sinful human nature. The spiritual is that which flows from God, that which is used by the Holy Spirit, but that which is carnal is fleshly, that was which proceeds from the flesh because of sin. And Paul is saying here that he's carnal, he's fleshly, he's sold under sin. Paul is affirming something here as a regenerate man, as a believer. He's saying that he's fleshly. He is sold under sin. There's still part of that old man that produces sin. But it's important to note here that the word sold is not in the active tense, in the active mood. It's in the passive mood. So Paul is saying here that the regenerate man, a person who's been born again by the Holy Spirit, is not actively giving himself over to sin like he did in the old life, but there's still something that remains in him that constitutes him fleshly, that constitutes him carnal. He's sold, not in the active sense, but it's passive. Sin is is relegated to the back seat of a believer's life. Now, we all know what a backseat driver is, don't we? Someone who sits in the back seat and tells us when to slow down and when to speed up and when to do certain things, when when to turn, when to hit the signal. Young people, as you're learning to drive, maybe your parent is that backseat driver. But in a believer's life, Paul is saying, sin is in the backseat. Sin is no longer in control, even though it's trying to assert control of the steering wheel of your life, as it were, for a believer, for a regenerate person, man, woman, boy, or girl. Sin is in the backseat. 
There's still something about us that's fleshly, but it's not exerting its dominion over us anymore. That's the whole part of the argument that Paul has been making to this point. We are no longer under the dominion of sin. It's been broken in Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. We have to reckon ourselves dead to sin. And yet there's still something that's there, active, trying to assert itself, though not dominant like it once was. So Paul is speaking here to the reality of sin in a believer's life. He recognizes a believer's ongoing flesh is still active, trying to give that direction from the back seat. Because of this contrast of spirit and flesh, between what is spiritual and what is carnal, between the law and the believer's indwelling sin, there is a contrast in action. Paul describes that contrast in verses 15 and 16. He says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. So Paul is aiming here at the level of, of desires, of motivations, of, of action. There's an internal contrast that takes place in a believer's heart, in a believer's mind, between what a believer wants to do and what a believer hates to do. Notice what he says here, for that which I do, I allow not. In other words, the things that Paul does in the flesh, as part of the old man, he does not consent to it. That's what it means when he says, I allow not. For that which I do, and if we supply in the flesh, for that which I do in the flesh, I do not consent to it. The things that I want to do, I, I don't do, but what I hate, that, that I'm, I do that which I hate. He gets to that again and repeats that in later verses. What he wants to do in terms of the new man, he doesn't do because of indwelling sin. And so it's important to understand what Paul is teaching about the presence of sin in a believer's life. A believer, you who are believers tonight, should not approve of the sin that you do. So the fact that we have indwelling sin doesn't give us license to sin. On the contrary, Paul says we should not consent to it. It's something there that's against our will. In fact, we ought to hate the sin that we do. This is key to understanding the presence of sin in a believer. A believer hates sin despite its, despite its ongoing presence. An unbeliever, an unregenerate person will not hate sin. An unbeliever will embrace sin. Maybe that describes you tonight. You don't hate sin, you love it and you embrace it and you go to live in it day by day and week by week. The final point, Paul concludes that when he does the things that he really doesn't want to do, he confirms the goodness of the law because the law comes again and, and shows him his sin. He's con consenting to the goodness of the law. The, the law convicts him. He reaffirms the distinction that the law is good and the flesh is bad. 
There's this contrast between what is spiritual, what is fleshly, between what Paul wants to do and what Paul hates to do. And that's true for every believer, even tonight. There's a contrast of desires between the old and the new that marks out the reality of Christian experience. And we need to get this right. And so we learn that the law is spiritual and good, but we are fleshly. The law is perfect and we are not, and because of this there are competing desires within us. There's a duality, as it were, within us, the old man and the new man, as as Paul teaches in Ephesians 4. Do you recognize that struggle of desires, that, that distinction? That you want what is good and on the other hand you, you hate what is evil? If we don't understand this contrast that Paul is setting forth here, we will end up in the weeds of hopelessness and despair. This contrast is vital to evaluating where you are tonight in terms of your Christian experience, but even more importantly, in your relationship with Christ. If there's no struggle, if there's no desire for the good, and if there's no hatred for what is evil, then you're called to repentance and faith in Christ. But if you understand this contrast, and this contrast is your lived experience, then there is every source of encouragement and hope to do battle with sin. Where there is this contrast then, there will also be an engagement in a frustrating conflict with sin in a believer's life. And that's our second thought. Part of this reality of Christian experience is engaging in a frustrating conflict this internal conflict between the regenerate mind and and what does Paul mean by mind anyway? Does he mean just our brains? When Paul uses the word mind here, it refers to not just our brains, it refers to our mind, it refers to our will, it refers to our heart, the totality of who we are at the very essence of our being. Where we live, in our thoughts, in our desires, in what we will and what we want. So this conflict is between the regenerate mind, that which has been illumined by the Holy Spirit, made alive by the Holy Spirit, and the flesh, which is still in the back seat. But it's clear from verses 17 through 23 that there is this conflict. And let's look at that in four parts. The first part deals with a foundational identity. Paul continues his argument, showing the presence and reality of indwelling sin, and he concludes in verse 17, Now then, it is no more I that do it. The same I that is carnal and sold under sin is now the I that is no more engaged in sin. Picking up on that language of duality again, that which is fleshly, but that I'm no longer doing it. What does Paul mean here? We take what he's saying here in Romans 7 with what he's saying in in Ephesians 4 and Galatians 5, and he's saying there's an old man in a believer and there's a new man in a believer. When a believer sins, it is no longer the new man that is doing this. It is no longer I 
in the terms of the new man that is doing this. It's the old man that's still operating, that's still trying to dictate from the back seat. And so there's now a foundational identity that grips a believer in terms of the new man. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. The new man of regeneration, not the old man of indwelling sin. This is also important to understand in terms of the reality of Christian experience. If we're always looking at life from the perspective of the old man, we're hopeless. That means that the gospel has not had an effect on us. Christ has died to kill sin. The old man, we reckon ourselves dead to the old man of sin. So a believer is not called to engage in this frustrating conflict with sin. Simply as someone who cannot do anything about sin anymore. If you are in union with Christ tonight by faith, then there's a new identity that Paul is speaking about here. It is no longer I that do it. Sin is no longer a foundational part of a believer's orientation, if I can use that word. A believer is not turned towards sin, is not sold to sin actively pursuing it anymore. Sin is there in the passive sense. It's still trying to dominate, but it doesn't have that dominion anymore. And so when we sin, Paul is saying in the new creature, in that new man, I'm I'm no longer doing this. It's still, it's attributed to the old man, part of, still part of that reality, still part of that experience. But fundamentally, it's no longer I who am sinning. The new man is is oriented towards holiness, towards the things of God, to, to please God, to honor God, to live according to His commandments. I delight in the law of God, in the inward man, Paul says. The desire is for the good. But over against that foundational identity, we have this fleshly intruder sitting in the back seat. The new man is in the driver's seat. We could say Christ is in the driver's seat of our lives as believers. The second part of this, this conflict indicates to us that there's a fleshly intruder who comes in the old man, the presence of sin. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. The word that Paul uses here for dwelleth has at its heart this meaning, that sin is, is housed within us. It's dwelling within us. It's temporary. Sin no longer has a permanent dwelling in a believer. It's housed there for the time being, still trying to direct. So this evening, believer, you need to remind yourself with this truth, that when you sin, it is no longer attributed to the new man. It's attributed to the old man, the fleshly intruder that is housed there. So on the one hand, we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin, But there's still the frustrating reality that sin is housed within us, still very much part of our existence, though it ultimately does not define us anymore. 
The question is, where does this indwelling sin, this foreign intruder that Paul identifies in a believer's life, where does that lead you? Where does that lead me? It leads us in the third part to consider a frustrating reality that exists because of these two competing people, as it were, within us, this duality. Paul expresses this frustrating reality in verse 19, and then again in verse 21, he says, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. I find then a law, when I would do good, evil is present with me. It speaks to the reality of the conflict between a desire for the good from the new man and the manifestation of sin from the old man. Both of these things are competing all at once in a believer's life. What Paul is describing here is the reality of a regenerate person. Do you find that true to your experience tonight, believer? This conflict, this frustrating reality that on the one hand, you are a new man. And then sin comes and tries to dictate from the back seat what you should do. Tries to get you to sin. Strong desire to do what is good. The sin that's housed within you drags you down and and you leave off doing the good. There's the evil that we don't want to do and we find ourselves doing the very thing that we hate. Frustrating, isn't it? Frustrating indeed. Without Christ, this frustrating reality would leave us hopeless and utterly helpless, but the reality of this part of the conflict, this, this is part of, of the conflict between what is spiritual and what is carnal, between what is old man and what is new man. We need to understand this so that we don't lose heart, that we don't lose hope. To understand that the old man is temporarily housed there, the new man is is exerting its dominance, even though sometimes it might seem like the opposite because there's a fierce conflict as part of this frustrating reality. That's the fourth part of this this conflict that Paul is setting out in these verses. For I delight, he says in verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Paul is using the word law here to point out how this battle is fought. In verse 21, he uses the word law. He says, I find then a law. There, law simply means principle. There's this, this principle that runs through my life. I find this, this principle to be true. I find in a principle that, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. This principle holds true, doesn't it, in a believer's life, that when I want to do good, I find evil rearing its ugly ugly head, trying to prevent the good that I want to do. That's the law, this general principle at work in my life. In verse 22, he uses the word law again. He says, for I delight in the law of God. There, law simply refers to the word of God, to the commandments, 
to what God requires. He delights in these, he's, these commandments. He's been made new. He, he has this expulsive power of, of a new affection. The spiritual principle of holiness that Paul delights in and wants to perform and to do. Foundational identity, as we saw earlier. Desire for the good. A battle for the good. A delight in what is good and what is holy. But over against this desire for the law of God and what is good, Paul finds yet another law. Again, he uses the word law here to refer to a general principle. I see another principle at work in my members. There's something else at work here, this law of sin, this, this foreign intruder at work. And this is where the war takes place in the mind, in the heart of a believer. The principle of the renewed mind is that he desires the good and wants to do the good, but he finds himself leaving off the good. And then the principle or the law of sin calls him back to the very thing that he hates. There's, there's constant strife and, and conflict in the life of a believer. Yes, there are times of peace. That's true. But in general, there's this conflict, a fierce conflict of principles. What do we make of this conflict then that Paul outlines for us here? It is the reality of every believer who has been born again of the Holy Spirit. Let me say this tonight by the way of encouragement. Conflict is a sign of spiritual life. Conflict is a sign of spiritual life. If these principles are at work within us, if there is conflict, we can be encouraged tonight as we come away from, from the Lord's table and we're suddenly confronted with our sin again. Conflict is a sign, a sure sign of life. If there's no conflict, we need to be alarmed. But if there is conflict, we can be encouraged that God is at work in our life, that we have the old man and the new man, that we are constituted a new man in Christ, and yet we still contend with that old man who is the flesh. It's an encouragement to confirm you who are believers tonight, to help us understand the reality of Christian experience. The battle can be frustrating because of these competing principles, can be discouraging at times. But the conflict itself is a sure sign that the Spirit has begun, that the Spirit will continue, that the Spirit will finish His work in you. That brings us to our third thought. How then do we live in light of this frustrating conflict? Do we simply give up in hopelessness and say, if this is normative Christian experience, where's the hope and the joy in the victory? Well, we'll get to there in a moment. Let's first sing Psalter 333. Psalter 333, all verses.
the closing verses of chapter 7, Paul really concludes on a note of victory. The words of these verses are well known to us, particularly verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Perhaps in our past, that verse was often used as we spoke with each other and we bemoaned the sin that was there, and that's where we would stop. That's not where Paul stops. He takes us to this cry, and we need to understand this cry is completed in both verses. And I would argue even in chapter 8, verse 1. And so let's look at that cry this evening that helps us to live out of this victorious conclusion. Because this too is part of the reality of Christian experience. We don't end in hopelessness. We don't end in helplessness. But we end in Christ. We end where we begin this morning. In the Savior. First of all, there's a cry of recognition. Paul cries out, O wretched man that I am. What's he saying here? He says, indeed, this battle renders me miserable because it is frustrating. It is frustrating. These opposing principles in my mind and heart are always at work. They're always conflicting. Within marriage, I say the things that I don't want to say. I think disparaging thoughts about my spouse and I hate it. It's there against my will. I want to do what is good. I want to treat my spouse well. But within family life, we say disparaging things against our children. We discourage them rather than encourage them. We speak to them harshly. We hate it. We want to be loving and patient. Or there's impatience with a coworker. We know how we have to treat them. We have to love them as our neighbor, and yet we we hate it when we don't. Conflict in daily life. No rest, it seems, in this battle. Even after, even after communion, it seems that these principles are already at work. Going home, or even going to your seat this morning, the old man is, is calling from the driver's seat. Right after you commune with Christ, you say, how can it be? It's so frustrating. Oh, wretched man that I am, referring to that old man again that's rearing its head and and calling out from the back seat. We need to remind ourselves that there's also the new man who wants to do what is good, a regenerate heart, a renewed will, and yet there's the misery of contending with sin. 
a cry of recognition, a cry of realism, not minimizing the presence of sin, but a simple statement of fact, decrying the presence of sin. Oh, wretched man that I am. Then there's a cry of of rescue. The cry of recognition and realism leads Paul to cry out for a rescue who will deliver me from the body of this death, this, this old man that remains here that's still housed in me. All that he sees at work in his inner life, he, he recognizes his misery. He cries out for a rescue. He recognizes that this frustrating conflict is too hard for him to, to, to power through on his own strength. He can't wage it alone. He can't silence the the voice of the old man in the back seat without taking a wrong turn. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? A cry of longing, even. A cry for full and final deliverance from sin and its power in this life that prevents a believer from doing what you want to do to live out your new identity. He looks about for help. He cries out for rescue, but he can't find within himself. Is that true for you tonight, believer? A cry of realism, a cry of recognition that leads you to this cry for rescue. Again, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall shall deliver me from the body of this death? But if that's all there was to Christian experience, We would indeed be, of all men, most miserable. But there's more, you see. The help that we can't find within ourselves is found again outside of ourselves. The Spirit who indwells us leads us to cry out for rescue. And that cry of rescue turns into a cry of redemption. Paul does not want to remain in his misery, misery, but a crucial and life-giving part of this cry follows in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where deliverance is found. It's through Jesus Christ. That's where Paul comes in this conflict, back to the feet of Christ. That's where deliverance is found for the daily battle against indwelling sin. That's where you, you and I are directed tonight, believer. That daily conflict should not lead to to hopelessness, should not lead to despair, but it should lead us to thanksgiving to God for Christ Jesus. It's a battle that is fought with a new identity from the position of victory in Jesus Christ. Here's the hinge on which the battle turns. How do we answer the voice in the back seat? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that sin no longer has dominion over me, but that I have been redeemed and that full and final redemption is coming, that that which is housed temporarily inside of me will one day be silenced forever. And we live in what theologians call the now-not-yet tension. We live with that tension, don't we? The cry of realized Redemption, a cry of full and final redemption that gives us hope. The conflict, can be, the conflict can be fierce and it can be real, 
but it leads us back to where we need to be. It leads us to the victory that is equally real. I thank God through Jesus Christ. Here's where deliverance is found for weary saints in this frustrating conflict. We decry sin, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death, but we come to deliverance in Christ. As you head out to battle again post-communion, remember this cry of victory. We look back to the cross. We remember Christ. He's the del- he's, he is the deliverer. He is the victor over our sin. He is the one upon which our old man has been crucified. And so, believer, you're called to look to Christ in this cry of redemption for present and daily victory over sin through repentance and faith and forgiveness in His blood. We look to Christ for the future when this victory will be final and complete and sin will be no more and we will only have this principle of the mind, of the will, seeking and doing the good unfettered by the principle of sin. The backseat driver will be quiet, forever quiet. In fact, he'll be thrown out of the backseat forever. Thanks be to God, deliverance is through Jesus Christ. But there's still a cry of rivalry, isn't there? It confirms this ongoing battle with sin. Paul doesn't want us to lose sight of this. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. These opposing principles will conflict as long as we are alive. That is the reality of Christian experience. There's competition between the mind and the flesh. There's a note of hope and victory. Again, the new identity has the ascendancy in every believer. They are willing slaves, willing servants to do the law of God. What they delight in becomes the norm and guide for their lives. Paul says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's what I want. Is that what you want? Post-communion. There is this new principle that I live by now. Sin is in the back seat. The flesh will always serve the law of sin. But as we experience that conflict, we come back to Christ for victory, for strength, for hope. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, there's a cry of reminder to encourage us further. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, reminding us that even when we sin, though we hate doing it, though we don't want to do it, we are reminded as a believer that there is now no condemnation, built on everything that Paul has said to this point in this frustrating conflict. 
Even when the backseat driver makes us take a wrong turn, we flee afresh to Christ. We remind ourselves, no condemnation in Christ. Because we're walking after the, after the Spirit and not after the flesh. We're reminded of this reality of Christian experience. But in the midst of battle, Christ has stood condemned in our place for our past sins, for our present as yet unconfessed sins and our future sins. No condemnation in Christ. The battle is fierce. It's a reality. There's tremendous comfort and power to those who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Yes, there's even victory to propel you forward this evening. As you go out into the world again after an oasis today to move you forward in the Christian life. May God help us as we engage in this battle to rely wholly on Christ alone. And when sin rears its head, we cry out in anguish. We cry out not only in anguish, but also in victory. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we look to Him to when that conflict will finally, finally be over. Press on, dear saint, Press on. Amen. O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word that sets out the reality of the Christian life. Though life in the trenches can sometimes seem so hard, so frustrating, even seem to be a losing battle, yet in Christ there is hope, there is victory. And so, Lord, when the law comes, let us not push it away, but let it come with its convicting power to lead us again to the blood, to where sin is dealt with and put away once and for all. Help us to see and understand the duality of who we are in Christ, that though we are the new man, sin is still temporarily housed in the form of the old man, and they're competing daily. And Lord, may that rivalry, that battle, lead us to Christ, who is our captain, the one who has done valiantly on our behalf on the cross. May we regain fresh perspective and hope then tonight to go forth from this place, to do battle, looking to him. We pray, Lord, for those where there is no conflict at all, or where the conflict has grown very dim, and weak because of backsliding. Oh God, we, bring them, we pray, bring them to repentance. Bring them back to Christ. Bring them to Christ for the very first time. That the conflict would either be renewed or be, be brought to life. Lord, we pray that thou wilt work through thy word then tonight to the glory of Christ Jesus, in whose matchless name we pray. Amen.